We'll be picking up where we left off on page 64. Every Wednesday we have our midweek program, so if you want to get an idea as to what goes on in our midweek program, you can show up this uh, Wednesday at 7 o'clock. We do only have two weeks left in this semester, but as I say, you could at least get a taste of what it's about and then when we start up next semester. And then uh, Thursday, this coming Thursday, 7 o'clock, ladies, it's the annual Christmas uh, ladies' advent, and that is going to be a great time. It's been a great time in the last few years, and I'm privy to some of the preparations for that and the speaker for that, and uh, you will not uh, regret coming for that. But if you're planning to come, we've got to know today. So before you leave, you need to stop at the Information Center desk and register for that and any guests you might be bringing. And then the last announcement related to that is those who need to pick up their tablecloth or soup starter packet, please see Marcy Hunter at the Information Desk today. So those of you that have volunteered for tablecloth, soup starter packet, I'm sure you know what that is. You know who you are. I trust. See Marcy at the Information Table. Great. Thanks so much for your cooperation, ladies. Appreciate it very much. And then by way of announcement, the breakfast this Saturday, 9 to 11, here for all of our men. So guys, you're all invited to come to uh, that breakfast. And then this coming Sunday, next Sunday at 2.30 in the afternoon is our quarterly family meeting, business meeting. And at that, we're going to make a proposal for selling our property on uh, Inkster Road and also talk about some other initiatives, one of which is a large initiative that we hope to uh, launch in the fall and we want to uh, tell you about. So if you're a member of our church and you can make it next Sunday afternoon at 2.30, please do so. All right, we are in our series, What's the Difference? And we are looking at the differences between world religions and denominations uh, and biblical Christianity. Thus the name, what's the difference? What's the difference between Islam, which we took several weeks to look at, and biblical Christianity? And we switched after Islam to begin looking at denominations and what's the difference between the various denominations, but most importantly, between what the Bible teaches about the gospel of grace and what many Christian denominations teach. And we started looking at that several weeks ago in the year 1517, October 31, 1517, because that is the beginning in church history of something called the Protestant Reformation. It was a time when a number of uh, Bible-believing people uh, protested, thus the name Protestant, and desired to reform, so Reformation Protestant, Protestant Reformation, Reformation began in that year, 1517. But we saw in those notes several weeks ago that the Reformation actually had its roots centuries before that. And having shown that, that many of the denominations that we now know today sprung out of what's called the Protestant Reformation, we then began to go backwards to see how it was that the then-dominant church had come to require reform, what things had happened over the centuries and what kinds of teachings had been developed that were not only extra-biblical but unbiblical as well, extra-biblical outside of the Bible, something the Bible doesn't teach but might be consistent with what the Bible does teach. That's extra-biblical, but then there's unbiblical, which is contrary to the Bible. And we've seen a number of teachings that have developed over the centuries that are directly contrary to the gospel of grace. If you've not been able to be with us for these prior sessions, all of them are recorded and you can listen to them at our website. And then if you have the notes in front of you, then it's uh, just about as good as being there. 
So now having seen that, having seen these doctrines, these teachings that developed over centuries that were contrary to the biblical gospel of grace, uh, we now want to go back even further to see how it was that we got to the point that you had a church, a, a, an organization, that was as large and as powerful as became the Roman Catholic Church. How did that happen? And that's at the top of page 64, the question, how do we get here? How was it that Roman Catholicism, by the time of the Protestant Reformation, had become as large and as powerful and was organized the way that, that it was? Top of page 64, the first several centuries of the church were tremendously important for its future. It was during these early centuries that the church struggled to define itself amidst ever-changing circumstances, both internal and external. During this crucial period, the response of the church was a mixed bag. On the one hand, much valuable work was accomplished with regard to defining and refining orthodoxy, that is, right doctrine, teaching. On the other hand, the church adopted a pragmatic stance on many issues that, over time, created problems for it. So we're going to go uh, on a fairly quick survey of church history, starting at the very beginning of the church in New Testament times, and then seeing its development, and show how some of these pragmatic developments occurred, and what issues it was that, uh, that were the impetus for those developments. So on page 64, expansion of the church. Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, gave what we, most of us know as the Great Commission, his final instructions to his first followers called the Great Commission. And those final instructions are found in a few places. One of those places, and the most well-known statement of the Great Commission, is in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And Jesus says, just before he ascends back to the Father, he's accomplished his work on earth, he has died on the cross, he's raised from the dead, he has, uh, he has appointed his special emissaries, the apostles now, to carry on his work, and now he's going to ascend to the Father. But he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And then in verse 20 he says, And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And that's the end of the book of Matthew. So Jesus gives those final instructions. That's the first statement of what we call the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. But then you have another statement of the Great Commission, giving a few additional details with regard to what the commission is given at the end of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 50. Luke 24, verses 46 to 50. And there, Luke chronologically has Jesus at exactly the same place that Matthew did. He's completed his work on earth. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the grave. He's talking to his first followers, the apostles, and he says to them that you are going to be my witnesses. And he says, beginning in Jerusalem. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. And again, he says, beginning at Jerusalem. So he instructs them, stay in the city until you receive power from on high. Second statement that we have in the Bible of this thing called the Great Commission. 
You're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins, and this thing is going to begin in the city of Jerusalem, and here's what you're to do. You're to go to Jerusalem, and you're to wait until you receive the power to begin this worldwide all-nations ministry. So when you come to the fifth book in your Bible, the book of Acts, in chapter 1, this is what you find. You find Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, and Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He's now writing a sequel. He's writing a second volume to the Gospel of Luke. And he's picking up where he left off at the end of Luke, where Jesus said, stay in the city until you receive power, and you're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins, but you're going to receive this power to begin this mission. And so Luke recapitulates that. He reiterates what he said at the end of the Gospel of Luke in Acts chapter 1. And we find, indeed, the disciples gathered there. And as, as, uh, and as uh, Luke reiterates what he had said at the end of Luke, notice what we have for you on page 64. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will be my witnesses, Luke records Jesus as saying before he ascended, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the third statement of the Great Commission in your New Testament. The first one's in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The second one is in Luke 24, verses 46 through 50. And now here you have this summary statement of the Great Commission again, opening the book of Acts. And then I say underneath that, the book of Acts records the historical expansion of the faith as the Lord had predicted. Now, how did the Lord predict that? The Lord said in Matthew 16 and verse 18, I will build my church. And then he gave these instructions to his apostles, and he tells them to wait for the power to begin this mission. And that's what we have point B in your notes, Pentecost, when the church uh, begins. So as the book of Acts opens, this fifth book of your New Testament, what do we find these first followers of Jesus doing? We find them waiting. Because Jesus said, go and wait in the city. And so chapter 1, you find them waiting. But you find them waiting with a group of other people who would become followers of Jesus as well. You've got the apostles, but you've got uh, these others. And notice under B there, there was a group numbering about 120. And when you come to Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost. Now, what is that? Pentecost was a feast in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And Pentecost means 50. So what's the significance of the number 50 as it relates to this feast? It is this. Pentecost was a celebration of feast that occurred 50 days after Passover. Jesus was crucified, you may remember, at Passover. So Pentecost now is occurring 50 days after, after that. They have been waiting in Jerusalem, as Jesus had instructed before he ascended to the Father, for about a week, about a week. And we know this because Jesus was in the grave uh, for a few days. And then uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that after he raised from the dead, he showed himself alive for 40 days. So if you take 43 days, the grave and him showing himself alive, then you've got another seven days for Pentecost. And Luke begins Acts 2 and verse 1 and says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that's Luke's way of saying, at 50 days after Jesus was crucified, then the Holy Spirit came. 
And they received this power now that Jesus had promised to begin the mission. Now, what happens with this, the number, this 120 that they had? Notice the verse we have for you under point B. It's Acts 2 and verse 41. After the Holy Spirit comes, this power is given to them to begin the message. Here's what it says. Those who accepted his message, that is Peter's message, he preached on that occasion. They were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the expansion of the church is starting. The church is starting and it is expanding immediately. We go from 120 followers to now 3,120 followers. And then from Jerusalem, the gospel goes, goes yes, there and, and beyond. So Acts chapter 4 says, Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, it specifies the number of men. Undoubtedly, there were women as well. So that 5,000 number now is undoubtedly several thousand larger than that. And this was in a matter of just a few years. This is in Jerusalem still. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We're not given a number there, but we already had 5,000 men, whatever number of women in addition to that, and now that's increasing all the more. And then you come to chapter 9. This is now moved out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Now, why is that important? Because... Jesus had said back in Acts 1 and verse 8, he's recorded as saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the, the earth. So this needed to move beyond the city of Jerusalem and beyond. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 9, you see that it has. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Now notice, it grew in numbers. So we don't know what the numbers are. We just know that this thing just keeps growing. They start with 120, then they have 3,000, then they have 5,000 men, not uh, accounting for the women. And then chapter 6 says it continues to grow. Chapter 9, it moves beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It's continuing to grow from there. So that's the biblical witness to the beginning of an expansion of the, the church in the book of Acts. Bottom of page 64, though, you have secular witnesses to the expansion of the church as well. Just Josephus, church historian of the first century. Now, some of you did not know there were such things. So some of you think that the Bible is just a bunch of stuff that some people put together who happen to be pious, and this is their thoughts about what happened, but the truth is we can't prove any of this happened. That's what you think. But that is, is false. There are actually people who are not Christians who lived at that time who actually give evidence of the claims that the Bible makes. At the bottom of page 64, one such is Josephus. And he estimated that the normal population of Jerusalem, which was about 50,000, would swell to 3 million during the feasts such as Pentecost when pilgrims would sojourn to the holy city. This shows that the numbers that Luke recounts in Acts are quite plausible. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because there are some who say all these, you know, Luke's saying all these people are becoming Christians in Jerusalem just is not possible. Uh, the Christians were greatly, greatly outnumbered, and Luke is exaggerating this. But Josephus' numbers show that not only is it uh, plausible, it's, uh, it's quite, uh, it, it's, uh, 
supported by the numbers that he says are in Jerusalem at those times. Three million would swell the ranks of Jerusalem. So this shows that the numbers that Luke recounts in Acts are quite plausible, contrary to those who say that 5,000 plus Christians is not possible for the population of Jerusalem. And then Tacitus, a Roman historian, also of the first century, commenting on the treatment of the early Christians, said this, to suppress the rumor that he had set fire to Rome, Nero, that's the Roman emperor, fabricated as culprits and punished with the most refined cruelties, a notoriously depraved class of people whom the crowd called Christians. The originator of the name Christus had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. First, the self-acknowledged members of the sect were arrested. Then, on their information, a vast multitude was condemned. Now, notice that phrase, vast multitude. Tacitus is no friend of Christianity, as you can see by his words, a notoriously depraved class of people. That's who the Christians were, according to him. He's no friend of Christianity, so therefore he's not interested in lying about its popularity. This shows the recognition and rapid growth of, of Christianity. Thus, in a mere 31 years after its inception in the year 33 A.D., 31 years after that, 64 A.D., Christianity had reached vast multitudes in a place that is Rome that's more than 1,500 miles from its beginning in Jerusalem. So, just in a snapshot, you see then, Jesus has these original 12 followers, then there are 120 disciples, and then that goes to the 3,000, and the 5,000 men, and then it continues to grow, and it moves beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the capital of the empire, to Rome. And in Rome, there's a vast multitude who are arrested and executed because of their faith. So Christianity is spreading just as Jesus said it would. Now that's the good news. But here's the practical bad news. And that is, as things are spreading like that in the first century, there are all kinds of practical issues now that are going to come up. And as I said earlier in your notes at the top of page 64, that those, those difficulties would come both internally and externally. And so in the middle of page 65, let's look at some of the opposition now that this growing church encountered. There's opposition in the, the first century, and opposition in the form of persecution, We see that persecution in the book of Acts from the religious leaders. You see the Sanhedrin mentioned there. That's the group of Jewish religious leaders who were the ruling council. Nicodemus, anybody remember that name from John chapter 3 in your Bible? Nicodemus was part of the Jewish ruling council. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was the one who came to Jesus by night, and Jesus said to him, you must be born again. But By and large, they opposed uh, Jesus, and then they opposed the the Christians after after Jesus. So Acts 4 and verse 5 says, The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 5, When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. And this opposition of the religious leaders culminated in the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is one of the first deacons that was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to serve the church in Jerusalem, but he is executed for his bold faith. And he, at his execution, if you were to read through Acts chapter 7, I mean, here's a guy who's a deacon, but this guy's been to seminary. (laughs) I mean, this guy is is giving an overview of the whole Old Testament in 50-some verses in Acts chapter 7. 
And you get to the end of Acts 7, and here's what the Bible says about those religious leaders. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. And as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen, now the church is going to move out of the confines of Jerusalem and move out into Judea and Samaria. Now let me just stop there for a moment. Remember that Jesus said in the first chapter of Acts, Luke records him as saying, you will be my witnesses beginning at Jerusalem, but then moving to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you get all the way to chapter 8, and you are several years away from the day of Pentecost, and the church is still in Jerusalem. It has not at that point moved out to Judea and Samaria. It's not clear as to why it had not moved out, but it had not. Perhaps fear? Understandable? But it had not, and Jesus said it's supposed to. And then there is the martyrdom of Stephen, and a persecution breaks out now, led by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, that causes a dispersion, a scattering of the Christians from Jerusalem to the outer regions, Judea and Samaria. So this is kind of a forced missions project. Persecution's happening in Jerusalem, so now you are going to leave Jerusalem. And indeed, that's what happened. And I'm just belaboring that a bit to say, friends, there's a lesson there. That God tells us what to do, and we should just do it. And if we don't do it, God has a way of moving us along in the direction that he wants us to go. And you see uh, point C there then, Acts chapter 8. After the martyrdom of Stephen, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered, notice, throughout Judea and Samaria, the very places Jesus said this is going to go. And that's the vehicle by which it happened. So there's opposition to the church in the first century. That opposition took the form of persecution, but also heresy, false teaching. Bottom of page 65. Examples of false teaching in the church can be found in Paul's letter to Corinth, to Galatia, to Colossae, etc. Now, you all know what I'm saying there. Your New Testament, the bulk of your New Testament is letters that were written to churches and some letters that were written to individuals that were leading churches, like two letters to Timothy, one letter to Titus. These are pastors of churches. But then you have letters that were written to churches located in cities like Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the churches in the province of Galatia. So Galatia is not a city, it's a province with churches, the churches of Galatia. Uh, you have the church in the city of Philippi, and thus the book of Philippians, and, and on it goes. Very often these letters were written in order for Paul, who wrote most of them, to combat errors of teaching that had infiltrated the church. And you'll find that then if you read the first letter to the Corinthians or Galatians or Colossians. And so that's what we, that's what we mean there. Now, notice that last sentence on page 65. At this early stage in the church's development, the apostles handled all matters of truth. Now, that's really important as we move forward. Because if, if you've got people teaching false stuff, who are you going to call? 
heresy busters. That would be the, that would be the apostles. They were the heresy busters of the first century. You had the apostles available, and the apostles were the ones who could correct false teaching. But what happens, have you ever thought about this, so what happens after the apostles die? After the apostles are gone, after the guys that, as we're going to see, Jesus specially chose to found the, the church. When they're gone, now what happens? You still have opposition, you still have persecution, you still have false teaching. And so, page 66, post-first century opposition. I mean, there's opposition in the first century when you still have the apostles, but then there's after the first century, you still have persecution, and in some cases, intensified persecution. Some of that persecution was sporadic. So from the beginning of the second century through the mid-third century, you have a number of historical persecutions that, that took place. One of the people killed during the second century during one of these sporadic persecutions, you see there was a man named Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr was a writer, an apologist, that is a defender of the Christian faith by his writings. And as a result of his defense of the faith, during this persecution, he was executed. His name is Martyr, and we call those who are executed for their faith martyrs because of this guy. So the, the, the title Martyr is named after Justin Martyr. And you had systematic persecutions after the mid-third century by Roman, by Roman emperors. Decius and Diocletian uh, led persecutions against the church. So you had persecution still going on then in the second and third centuries. And then, of course, you still had heresy. You still had false teaching going on. And here are some of the false teachings. Gnosticism, Marcionism, Montanism. We don't need to spend time about what those were, but I actually have a whole semester that I teach on church history, so if you stick around long enough, you'll be able to take that class, and we'll go through some of that. But these were, these are just, these are false teachings that needed to be combated, and the church has to respond to that somehow, but the apostles are dead. So, so what happens? Middle of page 66, what's the response of the church? Well, you've got this persecution that's continuing. And one response is the church continues to grow. So one of the early church leaders is a man that I quote there for you, Tertullian. And Tertullian makes this famous statement saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That the more people who are killed for their faith in Christ, it turns out the more the church actually grows. And actually, historically, that's, that's been the case. And there have been there have been lands in which the gospel was not known where courageous Christians have gone knowing that they would probably forfeit their lives. And they have, and as a result, though, of their pioneering evangelism, the gospel has gone in and, and grown. So that was one result. But here's what the church would do. It would repair to, in response to these heresies, these false teachings, to apostolic teaching. What did the apostles say? What did the apostles write? To us. And that apostolic teaching was carried on through what are called apostolic fathers. Now, why are they called that? So in history, these, there are some select people. A couple of them are Clement and Polycarp. Why are they called apostolic fathers? Because these are people who were direct associates of the apostles. Clement was an associate of the apostle Peter. Polycarp was an associate of the apostle uh, John. 
So these are guys who were with the guys. And as a result, they were trained and mentored by them, and they took leadership in the second century after Peter and, and John and the other apostles were gone. So one response was to rightly go to apostolic teaching, and one of the repositories of that apostolic teaching was these apostolic fathers who had been with the apostles. Apologists wrote up. The word apologia means defense, and so an apologist is one who defends the faith. I mentioned Justin Martyr, Aristides is another. But then there were polemicists as well. A polemic is to go on the offense. Apologetics is defense. A polemic is to go on the offense. And the church had polemicists as well, not only defending what Christianity teaches, but showing the errors and the contradictions of contrary teachings outside of Christianity. Irenaeus and Tertullian are examples of that. So the response was apostolic teaching and uh, apostolic, apostolic writing. That was, now think about this, in the second century these writings are being collected. Not every Christian has every writing of, every, of all of the apostles at this point. They're being collected. So this is why it was important to have people who had been with the apostles, who knew what the apostles taught. Uh, and as the apostolic writings were being circulated and collected and ultimately codified, uh, you had those who knew what their teachings were and could transmit them. But you've got, bottom of page 66, the writing itself. I mentioned Marcionism above on page 66 as one of the false teachings. And Marcion, one of the things he developed was his own list of books that should be included in, in the Bible. And Marcion had these heretical books that were not written by the apostles, but they taught the uh, false teachings of, of Marcion. And so he claimed that these should be included as holy books, just like the writings of the apostles. Well, of course, that was false. And so, as a result of that, the church began, bottom of page 66, to officially recognize those books that are authoritative. And the prime criterion for determining a, that a book was authoritative for the church was apostolicity. That is, it had come from an apostle or an associate of an apostle. Then on page 67, the church responded not only with apostolic teaching and writing, but with apostolic authority. And here's what the scriptures taught, teach about apostolic authority. That the apostles were a select group with unique abilities. It's important for you to get points A and B here for a lot of reasons, not just for what we're doing and what's the difference. This is important for current controversies within Christianity, that you understand that the apostles were a special group of guys. And not everybody can be an apostle. Let me try to prove that to you. The apostles were called the Twelve throughout Scripture. So, for instance, in Luke 18, Jesus took the Twelve aside and told them, John 6, then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Acts chapter 6, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said. Now, I just want to stop here and say, if you're part of a group where all you've got to say is the twelve, and people know who you are, then you're part of a pretty important group. I mean, they don't spell out, whenever you see the twelve, they don't spell out who these guys are. They're just the twelve. Now, at one point, they become the 11, and they call them the 11. 
Because, of course, Judas betrays Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 1, they choose one, Matthias, to, to, take, his, to take his place. And they're the 12. So that shows the uniqueness of this group. They're just referred to as, as the 12. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to them as the 12 as well. I re- what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. The things that Mark an apostle, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. I would just say this to you, friends, that the apostles were a select group of people, and now here Paul refers to the things that Mark an apostle. And if everybody could, simply because they're Christians, do signs and wonders and miracles, then there's no way that these things could mark you, especially as an apostle. Do you all understand what I just said? These things mark an apostle, which suggests not everybody can do these things. Because if everybody can do these things, then they don't mark you as special at all. You know, if, if you come and you say, by the way, I'm an apostle... And you can know that because I can do signs and wonders. And you go, I can do that. We can all do that. We do that all the time. Then it doesn't mean anything. Further, at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. You are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. And then to cement that further, no pun intended, Revelation 21, at the end of your Bible, when you have the new Jerusalem and the dimensions of the new Jerusalem, and John is given the vision of what that will look like, and he writes that down for us in the last book of your Bible, he says this, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on those 12 foundations were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So these guys were not only special in the first century, they're going to be special in the future, because they got their names on the foundations of the heavenly city. And I always say when I go through this, there's not an Apostle Leroy in there. Okay? There's no extra guy that's on TV right now who claims to be an apostle. These guys are the apostles, right? So that was the scriptural teaching with regard to the apostles. And with regard to the government of the church, how the church should be governed, how the church should be run, here's what the Bible said. After the apostles... The Scriptures provide but two offices in the church, those of pastors and deacons. Philippians 1.1 I have cited there, which simply starts in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the letter to the Philippians. It simply says this, Paul, and Paul says, I'm writing to the overseers and deacons. Overseer, as we're going to see in a moment, is a synonym for pastor, to the pastors and deacons. With regard to the office of pastor, the Bible uses several terms. However, it should be noted each term refers to the same person in the same office. So here's an example of that in Acts chapter 20. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders. And the Greek word that's translated elders is presbyteros. We get presbyters then from it. So if you get the idea that a presbyter is something different from a pastor, then rethink that as we look at this. Because a presbyter is an elder... But notice, when they arrived, he said to them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And the Greek word that's translated overseer is episkopos. Translated overseer, sometimes translated bishop. So you've got now the elders or presbyters, 
And these are the same people now. He called them the elders, and then he, when he's speaking to them, he gathered them, he called them the elders or the presbyters, and then when he speaks to them, he calls them the overseers or bishops. But then it goes on. He says, be shepherds. And that's the word for pastor. So he's talking to the elders, presbyters. He tells them, here's what you've got to do. You've got to oversee. You've got to be bishops overseeing the, God's church. And you've got to be pastors. And in all of those terms, he's talking to the same guys. You have the exact same thing happening in 1 Peter chapter 5. I have it cited for you there. All three terms, presbyteros, elder, episkopos, bishop overseer, and then poimen, which is the Greek word for pastor, all three of those used in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. So that's what the scripture teaches about how the church is to be governed after the apostles are gone. You've got pastors, you've got deacons. Now let's just stop here for a moment. We'll be done for today in just a bit. But can you see now how these terms, which are clearly in Scripture used of the same person, if you start to call the bishop somebody different than the pastor, now you're developing a hierarchy that's different than what the church lays out. And that's what many of our denominations have. Many of our denominations have pastors, but then they've got like bishops above the pastors. Well, the Bible doesn't know anything about that. The bishops are the pastors. The pastors are the bishops, they are the elders, they are the presbyters. So how did that develop? If they're, the same, if they're different terms for the same person, how did it develop that they became designations for different people in a hierarchy? Bottom of page 67, pragmatic developments. In response to the challenges faced by the church in the early centuries, both internal and external, some proposed the elevation of certain persons and offices above the pastor. Ignatius, writing in 115, made the first clear indication of a difference between elders and bishops. There is no biblical difference, but he proposed one, wrongly. And what was the rationale? The reasons for the rise of the monarchial, that is, ruling bishop, in distinction from the pastors, are the natural tendency of one of any group to be a first among equals, the need to centralize the church's authority for administrative purposes, the need for leaders to speak and act on behalf of the church in response to persecution, and then heresy required authoritative leaders to uphold sound doctrine. So these are all practical issues that the church was facing. In response to that, they made the understandable at that point, but it turns out to be fatal mistake of differentiating these offices, and now you start to develop a hierarchy. And we'll see what happens with that hierarchy as we go forward. Now, we're done for today, except if you were here with us last week, uh, we had a couple of minutes at the end of our time where Jean came and did an excellent job telling us about her trip to uh, the Holy Land uh, several years ago. And over the next few weeks, we're going to, at the end of our time, have a couple of minutes where folks who have been to the Holy Land will come and tell you about uh, what effect that had on them. Why are we doing this? We're planning a Holy Land trip April 21 through 30 of next year. We're hoping you will come. So we're doing commercials at the end of our Discovering God Hour to try to promote that. And in Georgia, uh, Toygo is going to come and talk briefly about her experience. Hi, um, my name is Georgia, as he said. Um, our kids, Matthew, Toygo, and Sarah and BJ fight, attend here. And um, in 1999, we, as a family, my mother actually took uh, 
me and my brothers, all of their spouses, and all of our kids on a trip. And Sue and Ron Biggs um, also took their family, so we pretty much had our own little tour bus. So it was very nice. So if you can all go together as a church, that'll be really cool that you can experience this and get to know each other uh, in a better way. But um, I don't know what your trip is going to consist of, but ours was three days in Rome, ten days in Israel, and three days in Egypt. And um, if I can just tell you, this is a trip of a lifetime. Um, the, as a matter of fact, it's, I really wouldn't even call it a trip. I would call it an experience because not only did we get to see things that we've heard about in the Bible our whole lives, but we were able to hear things and smell things and taste things. And... Um, So that's why I would call it an experience. Um, As I was going through, this is um, my uh, souvenir. Um, I know the lady last week that spoke said she brought up a box of, or a a jar of rocks from the Jordan River. That is so cool. That would be something like that we would do. But um, I came home and I scrapbooked all of our photos and I took notes throughout the trip so that I would remember some of the details that I know for sure I would have forgotten. Um, But we went in 1999, so that was a long time ago. Sarah was 12 and Matt was 10. Um, And so I went through the book and just looked at some of the highlights of it, uh, places that we went and things that we saw. And because I knew I would be nervous, I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what I saw that I was just in some foreign country so I had to write it all down so it's going to take more than a couple minutes but I won't go too long Um, swimming in the Mediterranean Sea how cool is that Uh, the kids played on the beach the Mediterranean Sea very cool right down the road we stopped at the port town of Joppa where um, Peter actually performed many miracles right outside the town of Joppa and um, this is where um, he, he was on his way to Joppa to go to, he was called to go to Simon the Tanner's home. And when he was there, he had a vision of the um, sheet with the, the great sheet with the clean and the unclean animals, which was a sign that um, he was to spread the gospel to, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And um, this is also where Jonah was swallowed by a whale right outside that port. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we were actually there. We actually saw this. Um, we smelled the sea air. We, we saw the, the trees and the, the homes of where Peter probably walked in and, and looked and, and saw, well, not the same homes, but similar to that. This country moves very slowly, so a lot of the things that we saw, I'm sure, were uh, very, very similar to what Jesus saw and what the early Christians saw. We saw the Valley of Elah, where David challenged Goliath and won. Um, And we teased the kids that we may have found one of the five stones that David used. (laughs) Um, We saw the fields of Bethlehem. So cool. The night that the shepherds saw the star and heard of Jesus' birth from the angels. Um, And that's recorded in Luke 2. And we did read passages of scripture. Every time we went to one of these places, we read the passage of scripture that related to it. So just as you said this morning, you know, 
it's not what we just hear about and what we read about. These places do exist. They're confirmed through history and through um, anthropology and all those ologies, yes. And um, while we were at the, um, in, in uh, the Bethlehem fields, there were Bedouin little girls that came out. I don't know if you remember that. They were carrying goats, and they also had a key to an old well that would have been much like the well that, um, you know, those, the people in, in Bible times would have drunk from. Um, we saw the garden tomb where Jesus' body uh, laid. We were part of a non-denominational service there, which was kind of weird, but we knew the truth, and... Um, we sung songs that were very familiar to many denominations that were there. And the birds sang along with us. And the flowers were so beautiful. It was just truly a wonderful experience. Um, okay, part three of nine. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> the Garden of Gethsemane... Um, was another really cool place because there are trees there that are hundreds of years old. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, I know that they wouldn't have been the same tree that Jesus prayed by, but you can imagine it, you, and you know that that's the same type of a tree. Um, we saw members of the Hasidic order of the Orthodox Jews, which is really cool, with their robes and their little black hats and their, um, uh, like, banana what do they call banana curls with the sideburns? Um, and they walked very fast um, so that we wouldn't get pictures of them, but we got them anyhow. And um, there was a large police presence. I think she mentioned that last week, that um, there was a large police presence. But actually, it was really kind of comforting to know that there was a police presence there. And... Um, just a little factoid, the 18-year-old and Jewish, 18-year-old Jewish men must serve 36 months and perform annual reserve service until they're 55 years old, which I think that would be kind of cool if we had here. Um, and unmarried 18-year-old women must serve 24 months and, preserve and uh, perform annual reserve service until 24 years old, which I thought was very interesting. Some of the people that were walking around and carrying guns, were actually trained civilians. Like um, The Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, which is the Western Wall of the um, temple, the, the latest temple, um, was so interesting. They were actually holding a bar mitzvah there, and uh, so we were able to watch the party that went on for this 12-year-old boy. And on one side is for the men, one side is for the women. So some of the women from the party were standing along the wall watching, um, not invited to the party, but they were watching the service. And um, what struck me about the Wailing Wall was the, um, the women would sit facing the wall, some on chairs, some just standing, some touching. But there are plants that grow out of this wall. It's very strange to see because it doesn't look like it should bear anything. But plants growing out of it. And people would write passages of scripture or prayer requests or praises or whatever and stuff it into the walls or hang it from these plants. So when you look at it, you think, what, is that a flowering plant? No. It's actually somebody had put a prayer there, which 
was it was cool, but it was also very sad <laughs> because you know we know that we can talk to the Lord anytime we want, and um, and and it was also just a very different cultural, shocking cultural thing to see. Um, we also saw men wearing uh, the phylactery on their head, which is like a small case that's strapped to their head, little box. And in Deuteronomy 6.4, it talks about um, putting, or help me, the door, bind to your foreheads, or, and on your doorpost, teach your children the way that they should go. And um, so they, I think that scripture is in that phylactery. And um, the Dome of the Rock, which is right next to the Wailing Wall, which is a Muslim uh, temple. It's a mosque. And um, the top of it is all gold. And that's what people think of when they see the pictures of Jerusalem, the golden uh, dome. Um, but from what we understand, that was built on the Holy of Holies, which is such um, a diss. I think to the Jews, you know, that they would actually build their mosque on our Holy of Holies, on the Jewish Holy of Holies. Um, and that was a huge contrast between the constant fight that the Muslims have with the Jews. Um, we ate falafel in the old town, in the old, old Jerusalem. People came out with chairs and umbrellas, and we sat and ate falafel in the old town of Jerusalem. Awesome. The smells, the spices, the leather. Um, just what a cool experience. Um, Lazarus' tomb we visited, which if you have claustrophobia, not a good thing. Um, but there again, you know, that, that's something that we read about as children in the Bible, and it, we saw it. Um, Masada, the mountain fortress where the Romans captured um, Jerusalem, um, when the Romans captured Jerusalem, there were about a thousand zealots that Jew, Jewish, it was an extreme Jewish sect that went up there and um, held out so that they wouldn't be captured by the Romans. And eventually, I think they were there for a couple years, and eventually they were overtaken by the Romans. And so all of them except for three um, that we know of committed suicide uh, before they would give up to the Romans. The Qumran Caves where the um, Bedouin shepherd boy found uh, many of our scriptures, including the whole book of Isaiah. Many other parts of the Old Testament uh, were found there. And if you saw this landscape, you would, you would be astonished to think that a boy was just walking around tending his sheep and he, he's throwing rocks and, and hits this, um, I don't know, what is it like? Um, yeah, a clay pot filled with, scriptures it you just you know that that can't be a coincidence it's totally god um the dead sea swimming in the dead sea awesome experience dead sea is 27 percent salt and because of the density of the mineral that's in the water you can float which is so mind-blowing bizarre that we could actually float in this water um it's 1,296 feet below sea level. So the air is rich in oxygen, and we actually use some of the mud that comes from the sea, and we've got a picture of our whole family coated in mud 
Um, they say it's supposed to be very therapeutic. Um, that was an awesome experience. Um, and they actually say that Sodom and Gomorrah is under the Dead Sea, um, which brings a whole, we actually brought some of the salts back, which, you know, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, where she turns into um, salt, there's a lot of salt there. Um, on the tour bus, our guide was so cool. He um, taught us a lot of the Jewish songs like um, Havana, uh, like Havanagila and Shalom Aleichem and David Melech Israel. So our kids had a lot of fun learning some of those songs, and we did too. Um, going to a McDonald's that didn't have cheese on their burgers or milkshakes um, because it's not kosher. That was so weird. You know, and the kids were kind of bummed that they couldn't have their cheeseburger, but they got McNuggets instead. <laughs> um, the excavation of the biblical Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down, they're actually excavating that. So we got to see, and it's very deep, you know, because civilizations have built up um, so much higher. Um, but we actually were able to see the biblical remains of Jericho. We saw a very old sycamore tree that they've got um, fenced off so that people don't, you know, destroy it, touch it. Um, but it would be very much like the sycamore tree that we heard about as children with Zacchaeus trying to see Jesus um, he, because he was a wee little man to climb the tree. And um, so we saw that, that sycamore tree. The Sea of Galilee, um, so beautiful. Um, this is where Jesus walked on the water. Uh, we took a boat ride on the fishing vessel that would have been one like um, the disciples were on. Um, the ancient city of Megiddo, where we overlook the valley of Megiddo, where the final battle is going to be fought. Uh, Mount Carmel, where Elijah uh, challenged and defeated the Baal prophets. Um, there's so much more. I, I can't go on, but... Um, we actually did have a lunch of milk and honey. I know, I'm done. Um, but every place that we went to, we read aloud scriptures, and it was just an astounding. I wish I could tell you much more. I do have my book if you'd like to look at the pictures, but um, I hope you can all go. I really hope you can all go. It will bring the Bible to, uh, to light in a whole different, new, wonderful meaning than you've ever experienced before. Sorry I took so long. All right. Thank you, Georgia. Thanks very much. Hey, would you mind leaving that uh, book on the information table for a few minutes? So the information desk, if you guys want to look through that, she'll have that out there for a little bit. And uh, Georgia says it would be really cool. She thinks it would be really cool if we had a rule where the men were in the military to 55 and the women were into 24. Women always have that kind of view, you know that? So uh, I might agree with you in a few years when I'm 56, but uh, for now, we'll go with it the way it is, all right? But thanks for your presentation. Thanks very much. And uh, any questions, see her. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed, all right? Father, thank you for this day and the opportunity to worship you and learn of you and to be with your people. And Lord, help us to not be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. Help us to take... What you have taught us from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, from our look at uh, church history and what you say in your word about how your church is to be governed and how your church is to evangelize your world, help us to take these to heart in our personal lives and to put them into practice this week. 
We ask you to help us, Lord, to be your ambassadors and to represent you in a way that's honoring to you. And we ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.